We this morning are in verses 11 through 21 of the book of Galatians, its second chapter. We are rounding out the extended introduction in which Paul established his authority as an apostle by establishing the authority of the message he's been given by the risen Christ. Today, we begin moving towards the theological heart of the letter. Our text this morning centers around a fascinating episode between two of Christianity's most important leaders in its early days and by extension through the Bible, still to this day, Peter and Paul. The two come face to face in somewhat of a theological showdown at the church in Antioch. And this showdown prompts Paul to elaborate on the relationship between the law and faith. He uses this occasion to help the church understand the centrality of faith in the Christian life. We'll get more into the context of the, uh, the conflict in just a moment. But that conflict, um, through that conflict, Paul is insisting that the desire of his theological enemies to use the Mosaic law as a litmus test for Christian community is, in fact, to turn your back on the grace of God. What does that mean? If you treat non-Jewish Christians as less spiritual than Jewish Christians, you're completely missing the point of the gospel. Paul will argue. So what is the point of the gospel? If they're missing the point, what is the point? I think the point of the gospel is quite simple. Jesus came to earth. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He lived the perfect life. He died in our place. He rose from the dead for our justification, and he has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit, the eternal third person of the Trinity, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, then came to earth, drawing sinners like us to repentance and faith, and gathering to himself a new people. And this new people would not live by the law. This new people would not live by any socio-cultural expectations. This new people, the church, would live by faith in the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. We have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We're going to spend several weeks mining the depths of this beautiful truth. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The title of today's sermon is Crucified with Christ. As we jump into verses 11 through 14, I also want to extend a welcome to our res kids, our K-5 res kids who are in the room. Uh, every fifth Sunday, so a few times a year, we invite the res kids into the big service. And uh, it's not maybe the most convenient thing, and maybe not your favorite Sunday if you're a res kid. Maybe it is. Uh, it would be my favorite Sunday. But it's important, I think, that we sit together as a family under God's word. And so if you're here and you're a kid, no, I'm talking to you too. I'm not just talking to your parents. And I hope that you can get something from what I say. And uh, if not... Uh, that's my fault and not yours. Look with me in verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The second part of our text we'll get to in a moment. It's verses 15 through 21. We're going to look at justification by faith when we get there. But now let's look in verses 11 through 14 at the confrontation with Peter. So at some point, Peter has come to Antioch and spent some, at least sort of, extended time with the brothers and sisters 
of faith. Antioch, we are familiar with. We've talked about the church many times over the last several months. It's a church planted by the gospel witness of those who escaped Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen, perhaps Christendom's first, Christianity's first martyr. And so when they escape Jerusalem and begin going sort of all over the place, they take the gospel message with them. They shared the gospel in Antioch. The church was planted in Antioch. And we think that from the very beginning, the church at Antioch was a pretty healthy mix of both cultural Jews and cultural Gentiles. We know that Paul and Barnabas were key leaders of this congregation. We know this is the congregation that had been blessed by God sort of numerically, and they had some resources that they would share with other congregations. We know this is the congregation that sort of sent Paul uh, out on his first missionary journey. So we know this is a very significant congregation, uh, especially as it relates to the movement of a Gentile uh, church. Peter comes to this congregation And the text implies that once he got there, he had begun eating with Jew and Gentile alike. And for some of us this morning, I think we can can ask the question, like, what's the big deal? You know, what's the big deal? I think we live in a fast food culture um, that eating is sort of something we do that is necessary and we do things conveniently or because we like it. We don't really see eating sort of at its core as this nourishment of our bodies uh, before God and before one another. Eating in antiquity was a really big deal. In Jewish thought, table fellowship actually meant sort of this fellowship before God because as everyone in the table partook of the food at the table, they were not just partaking of the food at the table, but they were also partaking of the, in the blessing that the master of the house had spoken over the food. So you're not just eating something sort of carnally and physically, but you're also sort of making this statement that I'm partaking of this food, I'm partaking of this community, and I'm partaking of the blessing that's been spoken over this food. Food is an important part of every culture. As Anthony Bourdain says, there's nothing more political than food. And the Jews felt a constant encroach of Greco-Roman influence in their lives. Many patriotic Jews then held tight to the Mosaic dietary laws as a strong symbol of their culture. By maintaining, by eating the foods in the Mosaic law, they are sort of making a statement that even though sort of this Greco-Roman culture is imposing on us, we will not bow. They would remember the story of Daniel, right, who didn't eat the food set before him by a Gentile king. And they would sort of eat as this patriotic sort of picture that we are Jews, we are a unique cultural people, we are God's people. Thus, in the church, particularly in the first century, when Jews and Gentiles gather as God's people at the table, they are crossing socio-cultural boundaries. And many of these meals, no doubt, include elements of the Lord's Supper. Jesus, quite literally, has brought cultural rivals together through his broken body and shed blood. What a beautiful, profound picture of the gospel. This beautiful, profound picture of Christian unity in every table where Jew and Gentile alike would gather in the name of Jesus. The text says, But when certain men from James came to town, he pulled back. We never do that, do we? We never act like one thing in front of some people and then act like another thing in front of some people. I don't do that. I'm sure you've never done that. We should be sympathetic with Peter to an extent. Peter had been motivated by 
gospel love. Maybe he got to know these Gentiles. Maybe he got to know that they're not half bad after all. He was gathering with Jew and Gentile alike, but now some other motives work their way into his heart, and Paul identifies that motive as fear. What's Peter afraid of? He's afraid of what these men may think. He's afraid of his reputation among the power brokers of Jerusalem. He's afraid his witness, I put that in mega air quotes, would be damaged. He stopped hanging with those brothers because he was afraid of what these brothers may say. Something encouraging to me is that this Peter sounds a lot like the Peter we read about in the Gospels, particularly the Peter who denied Christ three times in the most important hour of his life. And this rubs against this triumphalistic notion of Peter that after the resurrection of Christ and once he was sort of filled by the Spirit, he went from this cowardly forsake or deserter to the strong preacher of the gospel. That is true that the Spirit came into his life and he turned Peter into a strong preacher of the gospel, but we can see from texts like this that that coward never quite left him. He's still just a man. Yes, he's freed by Christ, and yes, he's indwelt by the Spirit, but he's still impacted by sin. Peter is scared of what other people will think of him, and that fear spreads like a cancer through the church. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Some commentators note that this is kind of the most somber moment of the entire letter because it's in this moment where Peter is sort of, or sort of Paul rather, is sort of throwing his hands up and saying, it's me against the world, man. Even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas. Barnabas was the one who put his neck on the line for Paul in Jerusalem. Others in the city thought he was a, a, a persecutor in disguise. But Barnabas said, no, God has changed him and he sent me to vouch for him. Barnabas was the one who sought out Paul while he was in Tarsus and vouched for him and said, you need to be a part of what God's doing in Antioch. Barnabas was the one who stood with Paul in Jerusalem as they fought for Christian liberty of Gentile believers. And now Barnabas... Even Barnabas has yielded to the pressure of legalistic religious Judaizers. Paul has to feel all alone. He's been rejected by the culture of his youth. And the Gentiles he's been called to reach are being treated like second-class Christians. And they're being treated like second-class Christians by the most important people in the church. I think the hope of gospel unity, the hope of a genuinely integrated people, has to be leaving his mind. Verse 14. Their conduct, verse 14 tells us that their conduct was not in step with the gospel. Doesn't the gospel create one new people? Doesn't the gospel free us from the cultural categories imposed on us? Doesn't the gospel free us from the dietary requirements of the law? Doesn't the gospel, even the playing field between Jew and Gentile, consider the gospel himself, right? Consider Jesus, the Christ. Did not our Lord eat with tax collectors and sinners? Luke 15, 2, the Pharisees bemoaned that this Jesus, this man, welcomes sinners and tax collectors, and not only does he welcome them, but he sits at the table and he eats with them. Jesus was not holy enough for the religious elites of his day, and the problem still persists in this day. And I have 
some words of caution. If Jesus isn't holy enough for you, you have a defunct and heretical view of holiness. Peter is not living in the model of Christ. He's not living out the implications of God's kingdom come in the person of Christ. And so in verse 14, Paul confronts him publicly. We can presume this had already happened to no avail behind closed doors, as Jesus commands us to do in the Gospels. And what Paul says to Peter is somewhat hard to understand, but I think it's significant. And so Eugene Peterson, in his message uh, paraphrase, does a really good job of, I think, getting to the heart of what he's trying to communicate. So let me read uh, what Dr. Peterson has to say. If you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you're being observed by watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies? In essence, I think Paul is saying to Peter, you're Jewish, and when those people aren't here, you live like a Gentile, and there's nothing wrong with that. But now you're forcing these Gentiles to live like Jews. It's almost this mic drop moment where Peter is, or Paul is saying to Peter, you're being a hypocrite. You're being a hypocrite. You are Jewish, and you're eating with Greek people. You're eating with Gentiles. And now that people from Jerusalem are here, you're commanding the Gentiles to eat like Jews. You're absolutely being a hypocrite, Peter, and I don't think you realize just how serious the consequences of your hypocrisy are. Because what's so insidious about this is that you're making these brothers and sisters feel inferior to you. You're making yourself seem holier because of your ritual cleansing, your act of purity, and your dietary laws. Here is the heart of Paul's message. You know better than this, Peter. Be bold enough to actually live it. Peter, you know this. We've talked about this. Be bold enough to actually live out the implications of the gospel. And I think this morning as we sit here in Charleston, West Virginia in 2018, we need to hear the same message. Peter's problem was not that he believed wrong. (laughs) Peter's problem was he lacked the courage to live out what he believed. And I think many of us, especially in the evangelical world today, our problem is not that we believe wrong. We can check mark all the boxes. Do you believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible? Yeah. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yeah. Do you believe that he died for your sins? Yeah. Do you believe he rose again? Yeah. Do you believe he loves you? Yeah. Do you be- the problem is not necessarily that we believe wrong. The problem is that when push comes to shove, when things begin to happen, we lack the courage and conviction to live out our beliefs. We lack the courage and conviction to live as a genuinely countercultural people. And I have a question for us this morning. Are we motivated by our love for the gospel or are we motivated by the fear of what other people may think of us? Because if you're following Christ, the Bible is very, very clear that there will be people who misinterpret you. There will be people who misunderstand you. And do we live in fear of what another church might put on the internet about us, worst case scenario? Or is worst case scenario that we might not be found faithful in our act of love and service and devotion to God and the world around us? What's this confrontation with Peter teach us? If we boil it down to a few things, I think all of us in the room can grasp. One, I think it teaches there are no second-class Christians. 
If you're a Christian in the room, if you're five years old or if you're 85 years old, God loves you. He gave himself for you and he has a plan for your life. His spirit dwells in you and you are no better or worse than someone else in the room. I think this passage teaches us that, there, um, that great leaders can be wrong. Did Peter suddenly cease being a great leader? Was he disqualified? Man, evangelicals love the word disqualified. Was he disqualified from leadership because he got this wrong? No. I mean, he continues to be a significant leader in the church. Great leaders can't be, can be wrong, but great leaders must be willing to repent. If our lives can't be marked by perfection, then our lives must be marked by repentance. If our lives can't be marked by perfection, then our lives must be marked by repentance. And the third point, I think, is this, that standing for the gospel can be a lonely business. Standing for the gospel can be a lonely business. And do we have the courage to live out our convictions? Verses 15 through 21 begin transitioning us towards the theological heart of the letter. And these words like justification by faith, and these words like law, and these words um, like righteousness. All of these words begin to be, really come together here at the end of this sort of extended introduction, and that's going to parlay into the next few chapters, that Paul is getting to the heart of the message, and he's using this situation with Peter to sort of transition himself to that. Verses 15 and 16, let's read them. We are, excuse me, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's start in verse 15. Paul says, we ourselves, right, we ourselves are Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know even that a person is not justified by works of the law. Let's stop there for a moment. What exactly does he mean when he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners? Well, he said, I, I, we're Jewish, right? We've been given the law, and that law has been a good thing. That law persists being a good thing. It helps us live holy lives. There may be some benefit to being born Jewish. I mean, Christ was, came into the world through the Jewish culture, right? If you're born Jewish, you have some things naturally in your worldview that can help you understand the implications of Christ and his coming. You have the whole Old Testament to stand on. You have the law. You have a monotheistic faith. You believe that the Lord is God, the Lord is one, the Lord alone, right? You believe um, that, that this is a holy God who has righteous requirements. You believe you celebrate these festivals and these feasts that, that all sort of point to the coming of Christ. You believe that uh, there will be a final resurrection of the dead, the final judgment. So being Jewish, it does, in fact, at this moment in history, come with some advantages. He says, we are Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners, meaning we have this sort of, this treasure. We have this worldview that helps us understand Christ more, that helps us sort of be more prepared for the coming of Christ. But even we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He said, yet yeah, we know, just because we're Jewish, 
doesn't mean we think that this law or this story or this history is what saves us. We're Jewish, and, and we know that no one is going to be justified. I mean, no one's going to be sort of made innocent before the eyes of a holy God through the works of the law. But that's only going to happen through faith in Jesus Christ. So, we go on 16, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Just in case anyone missed it, right? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is making abundantly clear. Listen, we have believed on Jesus because by works of the law, by being Jewish, like none of that's really going to save us. None of that's going to make us make God happy with us. None of that's going to be sufficient for our salvation. We have believed in Christ. Now, verses 17 and 18 sort of return us to the situation in Antioch. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. The opponents of Paul might argue things like this. Well, if we let... If we let Jewish Christians start eating with Gentiles, well, they're going to start doing all the things the Gentiles do. They're going to start those holidays, right? They're going to start going to those places. They're going to start wearing these clothes. They're going to start saying these things. If we relax on this, then we're going to have issues. If we relax on this, then God's people will not be righteous. Then God's people will not be holy, if these Christians aren't subject to the law, then what are they subject to? If these Christians aren't subject to the law, then they're going to sin. They're going to do just whatever they want. And Paul flips that on its head and argues that, ironically, the sinner isn't the Gentile. The sinner is the one trying to rebuild the structures of the law. If we were found to be sinners because we're living under faith, is Christ a servant of sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a sinner. If I rebuild the law, I prove to be a transgressor of the law because the very thing I'm rebuilding is the very thing that shows me how far from God I truly am. The people disrupting Christian fellowship and reinstating old commands, these are the people who are disobeying Christ, the people who are trying to make it harder for Christians to worship together, to live together, to eat together, these are the people who are disobeying the risen Lord. Verse 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Through that system, right, I died to that system so that I might live to God. Verse 20, man, verse 20 is life verse kind of material. You know, many of you have a sort of this life verse, this passage of scripture that, that is uniquely impactful in your life. And one of my mentors, uh, this is his life verse, and it is a really, really good one. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I've died with Christ. What's it mean that he's died with Christ? He's like, he's still alive, right? Well, it means that his union with Christ 
has fundamentally altered everything about his life. It's fundamentally changed the way he relates to God. It's fundamentally changed the way he relates to the self. It's fundamentally changed the way he relates to the world around him. In essence, Paul would say, I'm not the one living anymore. For me to live is Christ. It is Christ by his spirit who lives in me. And the life that I live now, Paul says, the life that I used to live, I lived by the law. I tried to be good enough. I tried to be righteous enough. And guess what? I was really religious. I was really zealous. I was doing a really good job. But that's not the life I live anymore. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul essentially says, I don't live by the law, I live by faith. I live by faith in what? The one who loved me and the one who gave himself for me. Then this is the heart of Christianity, church. The Son of God loves us and the Son of God has given himself for us. We don't live in obedience to the law, we live by faith. We don't live for God's love, we live from God's love. We don't serve a God who asks us to give our lives to him necessarily. We serve a God who has given his life to us and then invites us to give our life to him. Verse 21. Essentially, Paul says, I'm not nullifying God's grace. If righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Church, Christ did not die for no purpose. Christ died because his death was necessary for our salvation. And I would argue that reconstructing the law in an effort to please God is a fool's errand. I don't think any of you have reconstructed the law in an effort to please God. But I think many of you have constructed some version of a moral code that you hope is going to be good enough. You aren't trying to be Jewish, and all this talk of dietary laws is honestly just confusing you. You're not trying to observe the right holidays, and all this just seems unnecessarily religious. But I think the heart of the problem in Antioch is a problem that persists in our day. We're not trying to reinstitute the Old Testament, but I think many of us are trying to create some version of a moral code that we think is going to be enough to get us to heaven. <laughs> You're trying to be nice. You're trying to be good. You're trying to give enough. You're trying to not cuss too much. Even in the third quarter, when the Mountaineers looked incredible and then almost gave it away, I almost preached on that. <laughs> You're trying to be a good parent. You're trying not to drink too much. You're trying to go to church at least once a month. Now, almost all of those things are good things to try to do. <laughs> Don't hear me wrong. There is common grace wisdom in a lot of those things. There is wisdom in coming to church even when you don't really feel like it. There is wisdom in not being drunk. There is wisdom in not cussing. There is wisdom in being a good parent. There's wisdom in a lot of these things. But I would make the case it will never be enough. It would never be enough to please God. You can't avoid enough sins and do enough good to accumulate enough you know, positive vibes towards the creator of the universe that those positive vibes might echo from here to eternity and he might hear them and let you into heaven because you're a pretty nice person. You're a pretty good person. You're a pretty religious person. It'll never be enough. How do you please God? How do I please God? 
The answer is simple. By faith. By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the life I now live in the flesh I don't live by the law. I live by faith in him. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives with me. I have been crucified with Christ. The flesh and its desires are being replaced on the throne of my heart by a greater king, by the Lord Jesus Christ who lives, rules, and reigns from the, from the throne of heaven and the throne of my heart. It's by faith that you please God. It's by faith that you enter into right relationship with God. It's always been about faith, Paul would argue elsewhere. From Abraham on, it's been about faith. Faith came before the law, and faith then is greater than the law. The law is good, and it played a great role in human history. But the law condemns us. It condemns every one of us. And Jesus is better than the law. And Jesus forgives us. Church, stop trusting yourself and your goodness, and start trusting Jesus in your place. Stop trying to be good enough and start believing that Jesus is, in fact, good enough. Stop questioning whether God could love you and look to the cross and see how much he does, in fact, love you. Paul begins answering the problems in Galatia by talking about the problems in Antioch, and he's getting to the heart of the message as he begins to tell us that the Christian life is not lived by the law. The Christian life is lived in active obedience to the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So worship team, uh, would you guys come on up and we're gonna gather around the table, uh, the Lord's table. Uh, last time we did this, I did a terrible job. I had them come up while I was still preaching and no one was listening to me. And, uh, it felt almost sacrilegious, and so um, what I'm going to do now is sort of uh, lead us to the Lord's table. Uh, our worship team is going to partake of the supper, and then they're going to come up on the stage, and then sort of in that awkward sort of moment of sort of quiet and rustling around, uh, I hope you will take some time for reflection, and I'll sort of narrate that. So uh, worship team, partake, please, with the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. When we gather around the table, I want us to go back to those problems in the Antiochian church, right? That conflict with Peter would so willingly gather with people who weren't culturally like him until some pressure came and then he backed off. Because when we come to this table, you don't come as a Republican. You don't come as a Democrat. You don't come as a white man, a black man, a white woman, a black woman. You don't come as whatever your ideological convictions are. Are you all, all those things? Yeah. Do those things matter? Yeah, they all matter. They're all significant. And they're all part of who you are. But you don't come to the table because of any of those things. You come to the table because you've been invited. You come to the table because when you come to the table, you're proclaiming something that people all over the world, throughout time and space, have proclaimed. And what you're proclaiming is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ has come to earth, and Jesus Christ has died in my place. 
Jesus Christ is risen again. And Jesus Christ is ascended into heaven. And Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. And Jesus Christ is calling the nations to himself. And Jesus Christ will break open the eastern sky. And he will return. And he will gather Greek people. He will gather Jewish people. He will gather Russian people. He will gather Japanese people. He will gather Indian people. He'll even gather some American people. And we'll be his. We'll be the people that he's called to himself. And when we come to this table, we're proclaiming that all of that is true. It's that news which shapes us, informs us. When you come to the table in a moment, you come as one who is kind of like Peter. Struggles to live out the convictions that we hold. Anyone ever struggled to forgive somebody? Yeah, yeah. Anyone ever struggled to do the right thing when no one's looking? Yeah, anyone ever struggled to act with integrity? Anyone struggled with telling the truth? Anyone struggled with anything? Yeah, me too. But I don't trust myself, and I don't trust what others think of me. I trust Jesus in my place. So if you're not a Christian, somewhere in there you disagree. <laughs> I mean, I don't know where, but somewhere in there you disagree. And so this table isn't, isn't for you. But the Lord stands ready to receive you. And perhaps in a couple of weeks, the table will be for you. I'm going to pray. Uh, then after I pray, I invite you to come and partake uh, of the elements that symbolize the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you as we commune together and as we commune with God. When you come, um, there's trash cans over there. I didn't like sort of the aesthetics and the utility of having them right beside the table. Um, so if you want to return to your seat and take the elements, you can. If you want to take them at the table, and sort of as you may have done in a more liturgical tradition, you can you do that. If you want to walk over to the side here, I just, you know, you can walk on stage if you want. I don't recommend it, but whatever you want to do, um, sit up. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that doesn't return void. Thank you for your word that has seen the church through so many trials and tribulations. When I read this text, I'm reminded that the church has always been led by people who are just <laughs> a little incompetent. <laughs> The church has always been led by people who just don't have it all together. But through it all, you have preserved the beauty and truth of these things of first importance. The beauty and truth of the gospel. And you call us out of our comfort. You call us to not only believe a certain way, but you call us to live out those convictions because the life we now live, we don't live by any legal, moral, or ethical code alone. But we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. Lord, as we come to this table, we meet with each other and we meet with you. So Spirit, move. Spirit, speak to our hearts in these moments. In Christ's name.